Welcome to Cognation. I'm Joe Hardy. And I'm Rolf Nelson. Today we have a guest that we're really excited about, Matt Goodwin. Uh, Matt Goodwin is a founding and key faculty member of a new doctoral program in personal health informatics and the director of a computational behavioral science laboratory at Northeastern University. He was also a visiting associate professor in the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School, the former director of clinical research at the MIT Media Lab, and an adjunct associate of research scientist at the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at Brown University. So Matt has worked for a number of years on assistive technologies and uh, biosensing in autistic populations. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, he has a new paper out called Wearable Biosensing to Predict Imminent Aggressive Behavior in Psychiatric Inpatient Use with Autism. So we're going to talk about that paper and also some other things that uh, Matt's been up to. Um, so Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about your interest in uh, research in autism. What got you uh, interested in this? Yeah, um, we're going to go back to 1994. Uh, so after high school, I was a psychology major. I enjoyed child development. I was also a baseball player and a ski racer. I thought I was going to go to school and play baseball. I crashed my junior year ski racing, fractured a kidney, had to stop thinking about baseball scholarships and go to whatever school would take me at the end of my senior year. Um, my college or high school guidance counselor and parents got a little bit more creative and said, well, let's look around at schools that <clears throat> might be less, <clears throat> excuse me, focused on GPAs and standardized tests and more interested in potential and experience. And one of these programs was um, St. Clair's at Oxford University uh, in the UK. And I was going to do a psychology and philosophy certificate for that year in 94. It so happened that the director of my program's wife ran a unit for children with autism in Oxfordshire. And I got talking to her one day and she was describing to me some of the characteristics of her students. And you have to remember, this is 94. So this is pre like um, Autism Speaks, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night. There's not, I had not had public exposure yet to, to autism. And I'll come to learn that she had a high percentage of children with eyelets of ability or savant-like abilities or prodigious abilities. There were children in there who were nonverbal, but could sing in perfect pitch. Kids who could draw these extraordinary um, drawings well beyond their developmental age. Kids who did have some language, they would ask a new person, what's your birthday? And then they'd tell you, you were born on a Wednesday. And, you know, I'm, I, my mind is, is just like expanded and confused at how do these kids do these things while at the same time seeing that the kids, the things that typical kids do without learning effortfully, like orient to faces, look at people in their eye, use um, gestures and join attention to recruit people's interest. They didn't do any of those things. It, I really got a feeling like there was a social awareness or willingness to engage that was quite different than, than typical children. 
So I started to read more about it and I started to spend more time kind of clinically observing and helping out with the teachers. And at the time it was, um, you know, it's in the UK, it was very much phenomenological, sort of describing what, what the experience seems to be like. And then very much kind of coming out of the cognitive revolution, Premack and Woodruff and thinking about theory of mind, you know, this idea that we people have thoughts, beliefs, and desires that are different from each other. And we can kind of simulate our perspective and theirs and meet in the middle that this might be a core deficit in autism. And then some key experiments that were done at the time were suggesting that theory of mind might be a, a global impairment in autism. And then you kind of calculate the consequences of that. Um, you wouldn't know that other people are social creatures. You may not have a rich philosophy of mind. You may not be attending to stimuli in the environment that helps you negotiate with other people. You'd be more drawn to objects and special interests and, you know, some of the characteristics of autism. But here's where, where things kind of started to get interesting. I'm reading in the literature what they're suggesting individuals with autism can't do. And I'm spending day to day with these kids and they're doing those things <laughs> after they familiarize themselves to me, after I let them approach instead of me going towards them, as I show up more consistently, I become a part of their routine. Then they're looking at me and they're looking me in the eye and they're using gestures and they're referencing other things. And so I got really kind of second level interested in how does science see this and define this? And how does experience see and define this when you spend more time in the natural environment? So there's like the, how can you have ability and inability in the same brain? How can you come to understand something when you're with it. And then when you were supposed to take, I'm doing air quotes, an objective look at quantifying ability and inability through science, you get a different conclusion. And then over the course, I developed relationships with these kids. And there's one I want to tell you about specifically, but it was these relationships that I started to see development and progress. And then I got really interested in the power of, clinical supports and interventions. And, and even though there may be developmental delay, there is a lifetime of cognitive behavioral affective social development that still occurs. And so those three, I'd call those like the pillars of my passion and interest um, today. But there was a young boy at the time who was completely nonverbal. I'd never heard his voice in, in all the time I ever spent with him, but very rich. Um, facial expressions. You could tell when he was surprised or angry or happy or confused. And I used to do a lot of narrating around him about, oh, you're looking at that and you seem to be enjoying this or, you know, th this, um, this is something new. Uh, that's a surprise. Why don't you share it with me? Kind of speaking as though his receptive language, which seemed to be more intact, certainly than his expressive language, but he would do this, um, this kind of repetitive uh, running around of the playground. He would, I would watch him like sort of look at the side of a wall, look at the path, look at where um, some of like the, the play equipment are and like pick a line 
and he would run linear to these different angles. And I used to watch him do this over and over. And then, so I started to play, I would stand where I knew he was going to come to mm. a point that he hadn't approached mm. yet. And he would run right up to me and he would look up the kids. He's, you know, three foot something, uh, little guy look up and he'd make a bunch of funny facial expressions, kind of giggle, turn around and go back the other way. He wouldn't go around me. He wanted to complete his cycle without someone perturbing it. And so we kept, I kept doing this standing in different places. I was trying to make a game out of it. I got a um, minor cold. I was out the next week and the staff told me that at all the places that I had stopped in that previous playground play, he stopped and was looking around for me. <laughs> and to this very day, and I think it's where I, there's a lot of themes here that are reflected in this paper that we're gonna talk about. Um, th this designation of profound autism or, or more severe impact, the, the IQ at 50 or below, the, the no or minimal language, the um, increased rate of what we might call uh, challenging behaviors or aggression to self other property uh, understudied and underserved. And we know now because we're getting designation of that profound label that the Center for Disease Control is including in their surveillance for prevalence that this makes up roughly 27 to 30% of the entire autism spectrum. So one in 36 children by age eight are now being diagnosed. That's near 3% of the total population in the world. That's 78 million people worldwide who have a autism diagnosis right now. And 30% of them meet this profile that I'm describing. Because we have a difficult time, including them in research, we have very little evidence-based understanding about how to provide the best supports. And so this is where the public health part of me comes in. Um, the people who need our support the most have the least amount of science to suggest what that support should be. And we have an economy of scale problem. We have more people who require support than we have people trained to provide it. And so this is where someone like me, trained as a behavioral scientist and experimental psychologist, gets clinical translational interest, but then starts hanging out with computer scientists and electrical engineers and machine learning people. Um, I spent a decade working with clinicians and families, but the last 10 years has been working with people to help me figure out how do we instrument people in places and do real world data instead of relying on bringing individuals into the lab, which are strange places with strange people doing tasks we've never done before for ill-defined periods of time and hoping to keep it together and act natural. So, so you've been around um, from a time when autism was much less well understood, I think, and you've been in a position to observe a lot of research come out. Do you feel that we're getting it now that we're approaching understanding autism or is it still a mystery? I mean, you talk about it also as, as something that's fascinating because you're trying to relate to another human mind and, and one that, 
that is different, that's organized differently and approaches the world differently. So, I mean, there's this personal understanding of it that I'm sure you've, you know, you've, you've worked on this for a long time. About 30 years. It's a good set of questions you're asking. Um, I think if I recall correctly, it was one in 10,000 being diagnosed when I, in Mm. 94, something around there. One in 36 now. So diagnosis has gone way up as there's been more um, Do you think that's that's accurate or do you think that's overdiagnosis now? And it's kind of... Hmm. Hard questions. Um, There are several factors to think that there's an artificial increase. Um, The diagnostic criteria changes. It, It brings Asperger's in and out, which is sort of the more cognitively and socially able, but still requires clinical support. So higher um, functioning but, individuals might have not been diagnosed in, in the 90s. They weren't. So that's yeah. going to inflate the numbers, you know, five years after you introduce that criteria that people can meet. We got smarter about as a field about the earlier signs. So now people are starting to add, you know, American Academy of Pediatrics is asking pediatricians to do screening at 12 and 24 months. We didn't used to think of this until six years, eight years of Mm -hmm. age. So now you're going to get a big swell in people who are being counted earlier in life than were traditionally. We also at the same time that these numbers are really starting to increase, a lot of the what were smaller um, single institution or sort of caregiver family-run foundations are starting to turn into things like the National Autistic Society and the Autism Society of America and Autism Speaks. And now you're getting more resources and lobbying and surveillance and IDEA, new regulations that are passing about special education um, benefits in public settings. All of this is bringing more attention to it. So I think people are starting to now be more aware People aren't slipping through the cracks maybe like they were before, or they're not just being called an intellectual disability or a pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. They're, 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 we're getting finer tuned in what differentiates autism from those other um, conditions or syndromes. Um, that's going to inflate the number. And then we started to get much better insurance reimbursement. Mm-hmm for early intervention if you had an autism label that you don't get if you just have an intellectual disability. So there might be in a positive way, but it messes with the numbers. Clinicians are giving that label because it's going to provide paid for better services. And so diagnostic substitution. It's been a while since I've looked at this, but last I saw kind of big surveys, people trying to estimate and and simulate what percentage of an increase would that account for those various factors? And even after they kind of estimate what they think the contribution is, the average statistic that was being talked about at that time was there was still, even after accounting for those factors, seemed to be a 725% increase in the rate of autism over the last decade. And that has continued up to present day And it's interesting that the same, you know, there's a range around any central tendency around a mean, there's going to be some places at higher, higher and lower. We're looking in aggregate at the population. These numbers are the same in every continent that we do the evaluations Interesting. in the same years. And it is irrespective of 
race, of sex, of social economic status, of ethnicity. It is, I think it's happening more. I mean, I'll just say in the 30 years that I've been in the field, I cannot go anywhere and ask someone about autism and they don't either know somebody in their neighborhood or know somebody in their own extended family. And the more severe profile, the, the not subtle autism, the walking on your toes, engaging in repetitive motor movements, you know, aversion to other people. I see that much more than what I used to see, even in schools only for children with autism. Is your is your suspicion that autism has always been around in the in a prevalence like this or that it's increased? I mean, I don't want to go into crazy theories like vaccines and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, but... yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I think it's always been around. I think we've called it different things throughout history. Um it can look like schizophrenia. It mm. can it can look like intellectual disability. It it can look like pretty extreme social anxiety or pretty extreme obsessive compulsive disorder. At the same time, from the best I can deduce from consuming the science and talking to other scientists and public health people, and then just my own experience with service providers, families, and the people I know, I think it really is happening more. I don't think it's just that we're better attuned to it, but you know, Cancer is happening more. Uh, asthma is happening more. Um, ADHD is happening more. Obesity is happening more. Epilepsy. This is not the only thing that, that is increasing. A lot of things are increasing, but it does seem to be happening at a higher rate than a lot of those other pediatric conditions. And so speculating on why. Um, yeah, it's always dangerous to speculate too much, but, but it's, it'd be interesting to hear anything you have to say about it. Best I can tell... It's a gene by environment interaction. You know, there's been a lot of genetic research looking across populations and genome-wide association scans. There's something impaired everywhere when you look at the autism sample at that scale. The problem is the same thing doesn't seem to be reproducing for all cases or many cases that have autism. There are many different paths to have the kind of the same, what we'd call an endoclinical phenotype, the same presentation. And it doesn't look like it's directly heritable. There do seem to be increased relationships if you have a great uncle or great aunt who might be clinically impacted, but, but not enough to reach diagnosis, what they call the broader autism phenotype. That seems to produce a child eventually more often than not having a broader autism phenotype. We know from twin studies, monozygotic, dizygotic, that there's a differential rate between having the same DNA and not at the rate of autism. There's increased likelihood if, if they are monozygotic. We know that second born children of a family that has a firstborn with autism has a higher recurrence rate than those that don't. But these genes that look to be a lot of the big hits that show up in a lot of different cases with autism that don't show up in non-autistic cases, they're changing de novo. They're mutating after um, inheritance. So that means now what's going on in the environment, and that could be the environment within them, their bodies, their mother's bodies, their living environment, or, or nature, 
right? Our, our built environments. And then there's a lot of data saying that um, pesticides, exposure to industrial chemicals, exposure to more pollution and particulate matter, those increase higher rates of autism, but not for everybody that lives there. So this is the G by E is there's probably a variety of different genetic risk factors, a variety of different environmental risk factors. And if certain individuals get the right combination, all the time I'm saying, right, it's wrong. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. it's producing something negative. Well, it may be the cascade that leads to autism. What's so tricky, guys, is we don't have a biomarker. It is all behaviorally defined. If you look in the DSM, it's all qualitative impairment in X, Y, and Z. There are, it's social communicated and restricted and repetitive behavior with secondary sensory and some anxiety, hard stop. When you look at the DSM, there are several different items or qualitative impairments that you, if you have two or three out of the list of 30 some odd, um, you meet criteria. Run those numbers. That means that just in the taxonomy itself, you have over, I don't know, 600 permutations of how you are the thing that we're saying that you are. And then there's many different candidate genes or biological profiles that put you at risk. And then a lot of things in the environment that could trigger that. So one of the incredible things about this, this condition and probably why I remain so kind of obsessed and passionate about it is it's like the ultimate scientific challenge. It is highly heterogeneous. Individual differences are the norm. We have a science that does a lot of lumping. Autism requires splitting. It changes how you think about what is a statistics and a p-value and generalizability. Are you talking about what's shared across people or unique across people? And when we get into the clinical realm, who's in front of you? Big data is an N of one, but maybe a million data points versus the big data approach that we take in mainstream medicine, which is usually one data point over a million people. It, It asks and answers different questions. You know, uh, one of the things that I found really surprising about the paper um, that, that you wrote was actually just the clinical population itself, these inpatient individuals with really severe symptoms. And, you know, I guess I haven't encountered uh, people with those severe symptoms my, in my own life. So I was surprised to hear, uh, you know, there were so many folks in this situation. I'd like to, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this population and maybe a little bit about how a little bit what's going on with them, but then also maybe about the prevalence. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. So what I wanted to do was introduce new recording technologies in a natural environment, right? Not in a lab and observe behaviors that are naturally emitted, not experimentally evoked and to see how well could the individuals with autism wear a biosensor and comply with it, and how well could clinical staff make behavioral annotations on the fly? Like this is the the messy, dirty world and data collection was really wanting to evaluate feasibility and ecological validity. So this is why it's a why we're in the inpatient setting. 
the behaviors that I was interested in better understanding and trying to support are aggressive behaviors. So aggression to other people, hitting, kicking, biting, scratching, poking, self-injurious behavior. So hitting oneself, biting oneself, scratching oneself, major meltdowns or tantrums, sort of falling to the ground, kicking, screaming, crying, yelling, but, but maybe not making physical contact with anyone. And then property destruction. This is what families who have a child with autism who engage in these behaviors will tell you is the primary threat to quality living. And it's because in many instances, and this is what will partly describe the population and who is there, we tend to see a higher rate of engagement in these behaviors with individuals who have no or limited language, have IQs at 50 or below, um, who seem to have a more difficult time with emotion regulation, and oftentimes who have what we would call medical complexity. So higher rates of seizure disorder, insomnia, gastrointestinal problems, other metabolic conditions. One of the primary factors for, for, for referral to inpatient stay is high rates of aggressive behavior. And what that means for the family is that child's aggression is not easily managed. And so they're a threat to themselves. They're hurting their siblings. They're injuring their parents. They're destroying the built environment. Um, in, if they're in classroom settings, they're putting other students or staff at risk. Um, you probably haven't seen many folks like this because the way families cope is they don't go out into society. They, they stay at home. They, for the reason, which is partly the approach to the, what's described in the paper, parents who know their children better than anybody will say these behaviors more times than not come out of the blue. We don't know when they're going to happen. We can't predict it. We're often caught off guard. And it's the fear of that happening in a restaurant, at church, in a shopping mall, at a playground, at school, that they, they voluntarily stay at home. And then this has a whole negative sequelae of parents and children not being seen by others and seeing that it's normalizing, that we can accept it. Parents are not getting support from others that, man, this looks hard. Is there something I can do to help you out? The, the children with autism are not seeing neurotypical kids interacting and getting the, the benefit of social learning and, and peer modeling. Neurotypical kids are not seeing that these are not just violent, dangerous, angry kids. These kids laugh and play and have other things to offer. That seclusion, I think, has a two-way street that is, that is, is not making matters better for the family. And then what will happen is these kids get older they go through puberty, they get stronger and you can't just give them a hug and cool them down. And, you know, parents can't, can't necessarily, the kids are getting stronger for than them and are getting more willful. And then we see higher divorce rates in those families. We see more substance use. We see more family dynamics that, that are getting straining. The teachers are getting injured more in classrooms. Insurance claims are increasing for care providers. You start to get burnout and people leaving the profession. And so eventually what happens for a lot of these families, you know, medication works in some cases, but it doesn't, 
it'll stop working for some, or the side effects are very significant. Um, people gain tremendous amounts of weight, etc. Parents will find themselves in a situation where this child of theirs is violent and it's occurring frequently enough that they start calling 911. They start going to the ER. They start going to psychiatric psychiatric inpatient hospitals for long-term stay to try to reduce this, what I'll call dysregulated or disorganized aggressive state. And these are acute resources in society, police, ERs, and inpatient. They were not meant for long-term utility and, and service. So they're very expensive to society. So this project, I've been working on this for 20 years. I, I know that sounds maybe hard to believe. This observation that what if these are fight and flight responses? What if this is not about escape only? It's not about avoid only. It's not necessarily forensic. It's not bad kids taking pleasure out of harming other things. If I can't predict somebody else's behavior, if I have sensory issues, if I have not slept well for seven days, if I have clinical or subclinical seizures, if I can't voice my internal state to somebody else, wouldn't the world be potentially more stressful? And might I have a harder time regulating my own internal state? And the world keeps coming at me. We know all the way down to reptiles that if we are under threat or there's ambiguity around threat, to confront or flee is adaptive. And so I've for a very long time wondered if some of these aggressive behaviors are not forensic, they're maladaptive stress responses. Second to that, if a child is going to stand up, walk across the room and start vigorously punching and kicking, their body has to engage in a set of preparatory responses to facilitate that increased metabolic demand. So the insight 20 years ago was what if physiology could be observed changing prior to the onset of those behaviors? Could we then better understand cause-effect relationships between precursors, behaviors, and consequences? Could we take the out of the blue away from the caregiver? They know that something's about to happen so that they can get prepared. They can put their eyes on their child. They can rearrange the environment to keep it safe. They can get themselves ready to try to de-escalate this child, meet whatever their stressor need is, try to facilitate coping so that the aggressive behavior is not the only means for them to get their need met. You have to remember, once you aggress, everybody goes away or you get secluded, which is taking you away from all the other environmental stimuli. Or in, in some cases, you get restrained, which somebody is providing overt control over your situation. It probably also burns a lot of energy and you're tired after. And people sort of leave you, you know, they're reinforcing properties to even that aggressive behavior. But we know behaviorally, behavioral therapy, there are ways to get those same needs met. 
the same function of those behaviors without the negative cost of hurting yourself or, or somebody else. Well, the inpatient unit, that's why families are sending them there. It's staffed 24 seven. People are trained in data collection. They're trained to provide responses to aggressive behavior. And we get long-term observation because they're there for anywhere from nine to a hundred days. So it seemed like a good, safe place to do some experiments where we start to introduce new sensing technology within a clinical workflow. And then what you'll see reported in the paper is how well does that biosensor data, and we get volumes of it quickly, can machine learning help us ask a set of questions about how much data, physiological data from the past, is needed to make a prediction how far into the future of a behavioral event that hasn't yet occurred at what level of accuracy. Let's talk about uh, the kinds of biosensing that's available now or the kinds of, and you've done a considerable of this uh, amount of this in the past too. This is not your first experiment using biosensing. That's right. It's easy to get a Fitbit that can, you can measure heart rate variability. I think people are more familiar with this um, you know, because you can you can do a lot with just a Fitbit. So, what kinds of sensing is useful to tell you something about a flight, fight or flight response? Yeah, um, I'll tell you what we've used, and I'll tell you why. There may be other additional sources of information in the future that may enrich the signals that we're we're getting now. But we are measuring um, peripheral autonomic nervous system signals. So this is heart rate and heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. So the speed and the timing of, of the heart beating, electrodermal activity or what some. Okay. So heart rate, heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. um, when you just pure speed of the heart rate might tell you something about uh, being amped up uh, heart rate. What does heart rate variability tell you? So the, that is, so well, let me, let me go back for a sec. So right now, you know, one of the challenges has been how do you get a sensory sensitive, socially hypervigilant child? Um, how do you record physiology from them? You know, traditionally what that would mean is a 12 lead ECG tethered to a machine, sit in a right. chair, don't move at all. you like, just act like nothing's happening and we'll get your data. That, uh, it's got to be a lot more unintrusive than that. Yeah. Yes. So then yeah. we had halter monitors. So now you could start to wear ambulatory devices. We got that got a little bit better, but many children with autism still find that to be too foreign and um, wouldn't want to wear it. And then, so when I was in the media lab, was working with Rosalind Picard and the affective computing group, we built a early uh, a device. We called it iCom and we published this in IEEE transactions that was one of the first devices that I'm aware of that was built and then had some scientific validity of some of the measures I'm talking with you about today that could be packaged in a wrist worn, almost looks like a, like a watch. And this would, I mean, we're very fortunate. We didn't know this was going to happen was just before Fitbit fuel up 
Nike, you know, Garmin. All, uh, we there was polar monitors before that, and then we had right this punctuated equilibrium and Moore's law, and all of a sudden we had consumer wearables everywhere. So has that made it a lot easier to to be doing this stuff because the technology has been constantly uh, exactly improved. right. So what we didn't have twenty years ago that we have now are commercially available consumer biosensors. We have um, mobile phones with way more CPU than computers had, you know, desktops had 20 years ago. We have the cloud and we have communication protocols that let us now collect and stream data device, device, device to cloud, incredible advancements in machine learning and predictive modeling, and then real-time communication abilities via telephones and text. That ecosystem did not exist 20 years ago. Well, it, exi- it exists now. And, and really this paper is kind of a demonstration now of if we put all of that into practice, trying to see if we can predict an aggression before it occurs, is it possible? So, so if I come back now to the, to the sensing part, the autonomic nervous system is peripheral to the central nervous system, the brain, right? So when we engage in fight or flight responses, we have two branches of the autonomic nervous system. We have the sympathetic, which is kind of the fight or flight, and we have the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest. Think maybe about, for ease, sympathetic is the accelerator, parasympathetic is the brake. Our vagus nerve, 10th cranial nerve, goes down our spine, and we have projections of sympathetic and parasympathetic to the eyes, the mouth, the lungs, the heart, our vascular system. Um, our stomach and our reproductive organs. And what the biosensor is letting us do is look at how fast is the heart beating? What's the regular timing interval? So heart rate variability, to answer your earlier question, as we have more irregular distancing between beats, that is a measure typically of of health, Um, elasticity in the system, adaptability, quicker to be able to respond than slower heart rate variability or fixed heart rate variability. And so what the device is measuring is blood volume pulse. It's using photoplasmiography, PPG. It's shining optics, red and green lights, at the underside of your wrist. And because oxygen is in our blood and has a different density, as it's traveling slower or faster through those light arrays and the refraction rate, we can estimate from blood volume pulse interbeat interval with which you can calculate heart rate and heart rate variability. Then there are two other electrodes that are recording skin potential of uh, sweating, electrodermal activity or galvanic skin response. So what exactly what exactly is this telling you? I think of it, I mean, this is something, you know, lie detectors, right? Use something like that just to tell how nervous you are from little micro sweat that you have on the surface of your skin. Similar set of measures. So you're getting, so same that were used in polygraphs. Um, I think it's informative to know that you cannot use a polygraph in a court of law and there is not scientific evidence that you can't game those systems. So I do not believe that polygraphs are necessarily correct, but they are the same premise that you know, if it's more effortful and the stakes are higher to tell a lie than to tell the truth, that you should see more sympathetic 
nervous system arousal when you are having to think harder or keep a poker face or tell something untruthful. The, the principles are the same. But there have been, there've been cases of people, you know, put a tack in your shoe and every time they ask you a true question, step on the tack. That way, when you um, tell the lie and not step on the tack, you can't differentiate which is truth and which is lie. These aren't real. I mean, there's a whole thing about the polygraph that is, it is, I don't want to say it's sham. The application of it, I think, is is pseudoscientific. The measures itself. It's indicating some reaction, but it's not indicating Not that level of specificity. Like you it. need much more right. control over the environment and context in order to, to say that. But similar measures. Um, it also has something called thermopile. So that is giving you skin surface temperature. And then it's got a three-axis accelerometer. And in some now we have gyros. Um, that's telling you about motion as a function of gravity and space and time. And so collectively, the biosensor off the shelf that we use is giving you heart rate, heart rate variability, electrodermal activity, motor activity, and skin surface temperature. Now, a priori, what would you have predicted the time course would be like for, uh, say, an episode where it could be predicted? In Good question. Um and it's going to be very different for different people in different settings and different background factors. I was going to jump for joy if we could see it a minute in advance. And mm, yeah, that would seem like a, a minute would well, seem like a long time to predict yes. something like this in advance. Yeah. Our first published attempt at this, we, that we got a minute, we needed three minutes from the past. We could make a prediction one minute into the future at about, 74% average accuracy for everybody. We, in the more recent study, have seven... Sorry. And that was how long, how long ago um, was that? I think that was about three or four years ago. That was okay. one clinical inpatient site with 20 individuals with autism and only looking at aggression to other people. The recent study is 70 individuals none of whom were included in the prior study at four different clinical inpatient sites. And we were looking at aggression to other people, plus looking at self-injury and also looking at meltdowns or tantrums. And the results this time around suggest we can make a prediction three minutes in advance with 80% average accuracy for all participants and all behaviors. And what gets very exciting to me about this is three minutes is enough time to do something pre preemptive. That's a long time. It's surprising. I mean, it really is surprising that yeah. you know, three minutes is something's been yeah. building up for that. Yeah. Long. The impact of that is, is amazing. I mean, I was just, I was noting in the paper that in 497 hours of observation, you saw 6,665 aggressive behaviors. That's more than 10 an hour. That's, That's correct. a lot. <laughs> a lot. And it's yeah. partly this impatient setting, right? That's why yeah. they're being sent there. I knew that. I knew we would see high frequency so you can collect. You can get a lot of instances in a shorter amount of time. I mean, that's still 500 hours of data collection. This is an enormous task of a very large team of people gathering that data set. But we get a lot of instances in a short period of time. The, the next, I mean, there are two major next, well, three probably major next steps of this work going forward. But the next is 
the, the most immediate is reproducing these same experiments in an outpatient setting. Where something might be a lot less frequent, you might be more worried yeah. about false alarms that you might be setting exactly. it off too often or calibrating exactly right. a little bit. Exactly yeah. right. And, yeah. you know, the, the really, I'd say, dangerous aggressive behaviors are the ones that incur, that occur infrequently, but, but with very high intensity. The infrequency gets people off their guard. And, but the consequences are very high because it's a very extreme or dramatic um, outburst, typically, that nobody's prepared for. And that's when stuff really gets challenging. So the outpatient is going to do so, a, a few nice things for us. Um, this is now a collaboration with the Marcus Autism Center at Emory University. Uh, it's a, a NIHRO one, so it'll be four years. We're in year two now. Uh, Atlanta has a much more, much larger population and a much more diverse population than the clinical sites that we've been gathering data in before. So I think we'll have greater demography, geography, ethnicity represented. It's also, our data is being collected, the biosensor data is being collected in the context of functional analysis of behavior. So these are trained behavior analysts who are doing several, uh, I think they'll do up to like 15 different repeated sessions where they are intentionally manipulating the environment to see if they can elicit the behaviors so that they can determine whether they are socially mediated or automatically maintained, which has a different function of the behavior, which also has different intervention approaches that have differential effectiveness depending on what's the generating function of the behavior. And so one, one of the things I'd like to do is see if we incorporate that clinical knowledge about automatically maintained or socially mediated or sensory mediated or object preferentially mediated or escape or avoid a demand mediated. If we can incorporate those as features in our machine learning models, can we do a better job of making predictions for different types of individuals with autism who engage in aggression than treating them as a single class, one size fits all. It also means, and it's the other thread of the work that is not, it's alluded to in the paper, but it's not described in the paper, is collecting this data, running machine learning on it in real time, and pushing um, just-in-time adaptive intervention alerts in the moment pre-escalation. And so we've built a software infrastructure to do that. And that, you know, sort of after, so if our models get better in the outpatient setting and increased accuracy of the predictions are made because we can incorporate clinical decisions about the function of the behavior, and we can send real-time alerts prior to onset of the behavior, I want to send those system home with the families where the clinician has provided a behavior management plan based on their functional analysis and trained the parent how to implement that on their own and see what is the benefit of alert notification reminding the families before they have to deploy the behavioral intervention to get ready. Will delivering the notification versus suppressing it have a a measurable impact on the success the parent has at avoiding or reducing 
the length and harm of the aggressive behavior. Well, I mean, intuitively, you would think that the earlier you, the earlier you intervene, the more effective it's going to be, right? As as a yes, yeah, like you kind of you break the chain, right? You reduce the behavioral momentum. You're right, exactly. Before that's it gets right. out of control and sort of self, yeah. that's exactly stadium. right. Yeah. In in terms of that, I mean, let's say you had three minutes uh, of a warning that something was about to happen, uh, an aggressive behavior. What kinds of interventions? are thought to be effective or, or yeah. hypothesized, hypothesized to be effective? Yeah, so I, I, um, I won't differentiate them, but I'll, I'll allude to some of both classes. And some of this is blue sky. We'll see. We'll have to test and we'll really know. But remember, too, that we live in a world with a lot of smart devices. By smart, I mean they're connected to the internet, they're on local networks, they know that there are other technologies that are a part of the same household. There are if then that protocols that you can have technologies respond contingently to other technologies. I just want to give a little context because the answer may seem, sound different than the one that you're anticipating. Say you've got the sensor, say um, You've got a phone or a computer that's receiving the data. It's connected to the internet. It's pushing the data and any behavioral observations that a family has made to the cloud. The classifiers are running. Then they push in response an alert that there's three minutes. Okay, so the doors of the house could automatically lock so a child can't run into the street. Lights could get brighter or dimmer to signal to somebody in another room, come here, or to try to reduce the visual load of the person who's in the room. Music could come on your Sonos and play sounds that you've determined before are soothing, or maybe a favorite song that the kid likes to break the chain from whatever they were focused on to now a, a, a more desirable um, reinforcing stimulus. Uh, Alexa could, could come on and start re recording the, the environment or giving some verbal in, instructions. Uh, a communication to the parent's phone who may be in a different room. You should probably start heading down to the playroom where your child is at because they're starting to escalate. So they're going to stop whatever they're doing, go be physically present with their child, giving cues to take a deep breath and relax, doing... Um, tasks that are mastered, that are easy. You know, you're trying to break the attention and the, the momentum away. You're trying to, to de-escalate, right? You're, or to redirect. We have evidence that de-escalation, reinforcing incompatible behavior, um, redirection, all of those reduce the impact or giving someone who is nonverbal speech communication opportunities where, where you can help them point and articulate in a picture that maybe they need to take a break or my tummy hurts or you have to remember they can't tell you what their life ex experience is like on their own. So the, I mean, these are all things that I would seek to bundle the sensing and the alerting with. Ultimately, it'll be the clinician and the parents who tell us what configuration of how to give that alert, what can change in the environment automatically, and what we can do with our child given that period of time will give us a sense of, you know, even if you don't resolve it in three minutes, I would like to think that maybe you can get three more minutes. 
you know, maybe you could keep delaying the, the, the that final outburst. Well, in a sense, it seems like some of this is is quite similar to biofeedback, right? It'd be um, like other enabled biofeedback. I mean, there's plenty of things we could do. Well, you know, when I when I when I have this emotion or I think this thought, all of a sudden the doors mm-hmm. lock, or Alexa mm-hmm. comes on, or mm-hmm. all of this stuff, right? It's all fe- it's all a consequence of that internal Correct. state, not necessarily something Correct. they've done, but something that they've you know they just have this internal. Now this state. gets hard, right? Because everything I've said, I, most people I talk to say I totally see. Like I'm excited that we're going to likely see some benefit come out of this, but the peripheral autonomic nervous system is part of a generalized response that our bodies have to a myriad of things that may not have to deal with aggression, Mm. right? We regulate our blood pressure. We regulate our temperature. We experience pain. We, there's other noxious stimuli. We, We have, we get in bad moods. We eat things that don't make us feel good. You know, so there, there's an ongoing question of sensitivity and specificity of these measures and those behaviors. And then we have to think about time. Like the farther you get away from the onset of the behavior, the more intervening factors in life can happen where your changes in physiology may not be related to that ultimate behavior. So while I gave you a little bit of a picture where everything is automated, I feel very strongly this data and the actions people take have to involve a human in the loop. Does the, do you think there might be some room for an automated response in higher, in higher functioning individuals who still may have uh, behavioral? Yeah. Very nice question. So I, that can, that can integrate, that can integrate this information and and sort of understand what, what Q it provides. Yeah. Very good question. I've done focus groups with uh, more verbally able um, individuals with autism about this work. And they say, I would love it if this was like my personal assistant on my phone of saying, you're starting to trend your body. My body is starting to trend in a direction that last time when I didn't deal with it, it went really bad for me. And so this is a cue to raise my consciousness, take a break from what I'm doing, communicate to other people, give me a little space while I kind of gather myself. There, it could be self-monitoring and self-management, 100%. The individuals with profound autism that are in this inpatient setting and really more in the outpatient setting, many of them do not have the verbal and the cognitive abilities that make it clear to me that they could do that on their own. I, it would be something I think we should always try. That's why I've focused a little bit more on the, the on the caregivers and the support staff for that segment of the population. But no, yeah, know thyself. Yeah, yeah. Um, quantify thyself right. and be proactive. But self regulation gonna gonna be harder for lower functioning individuals, of course. So it's sort of yeah. But but I know that you have done in in prior research you've worked with, um, and we can talk. I'm sure you have tons to talk about uh, about other research too. Is emotion recognition for um, yes. higher functioning yep. autistic individuals? Um, maybe you could say a word. Yeah, about so that, uh, that was also a really nice um, kind of early start uh, enabling technology in the media lab. So half of us were um, 
working on the biosensing. The other half were working on facial expression detection and kind of computer vision and affect. And if you remember back in your early psychology classes and studying emotions, one of the leading models was the circumplex model of affect. Two dimensions, we have arousal high to low, and we have valence positive to negative. So if you're looking at a quadrant, and now you could kind of plot each discrete emotion is kind of an elliptical somewhere around the center of that quadrant going out. So positively valence, high arousal, negatively valence, high arousal, low arousal, positive valence, low arousal, or high arousal, low valence. And you could start to sort out what is anxious from relaxed, what is you know stressed from excited. So in the absence of someone telling you about their affective state, their emotional state, one of the better objective ways is to look at facial expressions and look for valence and look at peripheral physiology for arousal, for physiological arousal. Mm. So we were looking at like, could we combine those two together or single modality? How well could you help a more cognitively able individual with autism learn how to recognize facial expressions in other people where a small tablet with an outward facing camera is finding faces in the natural field, plotting action units on their face, running a facial expression detection algorithm. We would then send kids out on emotional treasure hunts. We'd say, go see if you can find instances mm -hmm. of other people looking happy, confused, you know, uh, afraid, disgusted. And then we would turn this into social stories where we'd say, now go see if you can elicit those facial expressions in other people. And we were trying to play with the affinity for computing and watching videos in that segment of the population where they're learning something about perception, production, language to communicate emotional things with the idea of like, let's gamify what is otherwise a really boring way to teach people social emotional understanding. Now, have you kept up on any of that stuff as, as neural networks have been improving and facial recognition has been yes. getting much better? That's all moving forward. I have also had better mentorship, more time to read and think, um, and really impressed by some other scientists' research showing that emotions are much more complex than we have traditionally come to think they are. And just a computer detecting them by the face is only going to get you so far. We construct emotions. We, we, we perceive our bodies. We selectively attend to things in the environment. We have histories. We have variation in experience and emotional language. Emotions are very context dependent. Being able to just sit, have a computer tell you what the feeling state of a person is based on their face I now am more conservative about the accuracy and benefit of that than I was quite early on. I don't mean to say that it doesn't have a role to play, but I'm seeing less applications of that technology in what I would call 
quality health science. I'm seeing it more in marketing and advertisement and maybe like driver safety. Well, you know, this, uh, this research is, is fascinating. Um, and, you know, really important work as well. I mean, I think the application of this is, is tremendously, uh, you know, the, the potential for this is, is incredible. And there's such a need out there as well. I guess as a last question, Matt, uh, what are you excited about in terms of next steps? Like what, what's the, the next big thing that you're really excited about? Yeah, thank you um, for that question. There, there's sort of two things, I think. Um, so this was published on December 21st, right? That's only a couple of weeks ago. It's already been viewed and downloaded over 4,000 times. That tells me that there are people out in the world who are interested in this. We also published the sup a supplement that details every step we took to produce our machine learning classifier. And the Simons Foundation has agreed to host our de-identified data set. And I am gonna give the data that we used to run all the experiments in the paper uh, freely available to other scientists to see if they can outperform us. Crowdsource this data the data will be de-identified, but if those investigators are willing to share back their successes and failures, like I will continue to do, I'm excited that we might continue to improvement that gets to families faster. On that second side, um, I'm increasingly interested in developing software that a, a caregiver and a family member can use that provides a direct benefit to them day to day, but also, so it makes it sticky. They're gonna keep using it because it, it's, it's providing a clinical benefit and a mass an increasingly larger, more diverse data set, and then bring real world data back into academia and have my students doing theses and dissertations on human lives day to day innovating in new um, machine learning or new sources of data collection that are going to kind of power what would then be even better and more broadly available products and services that help parents better manage this class of behavior so that these individuals are not reliant on too few too costly professional services. It's really like, can we empower the families and communities to have less reliance on mainframe expensive hospital? Okay, last question. Interested families who might hear this and wonder how they can keep up with um, any new developments in the field, anywhere you can point them? Oh boy, um, I need to get better organized because I wanna, I, I, I hear from families a lot and I, I love it. I don't, this is not a product and a service right now. I, I can't provide it to somebody. This is research. This is being maintained by faculty and graduate students who Well, as soon as you get your Kickstarter up and going, we'll keep an eye out for that. <laughs> so that's a good, that's, so that's where this needs to go. Um, if there are people out there who have a child that, meets the description, thinks that this would be a potentially good solution. I, I want to know who you are and I want to ask more questions to figure out what the common needs are. And I want to see if we can get a critical, you know, number of people to 
help find investments so that we can really focus on delivering this as a, as a service. This is, I, I'm being very careful and very slow to make sure scientifically that whatever claims we're going to make about these technologies will be accurate. But eventually, um, we're not going to know until we really put it into practice with a lot of people. And so that'll be the next hump is getting this out of academia only, translating this into community science. And then ultimately, we're going to live with live with these technologies and really see their benefit. And once we see that benefit, I, 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 we're gonna, I'm going to do whatever I can in regulatory, uh, in evidence-based to get FDA to approve this, to, to see if we can get insurance companies to pay for this. You know, the people who really need it can't afford it. Um, so this is, you know, when that will happen, how that will happen, um, I don't know yet, but that's going to be the next frontier. How do we deliver this? Well, Matt Goodwin, this has been absolutely great having you on. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. So thanks a lot for hanging out. Cool. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking to you guys, and I appreciate you spreading the good word. Thanks, Matt.